0: This is Sophie Wilson, and you are listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Support the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast on patreon.com slash slowboatsailing. Welcome to episode 31 of the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. On this episode, we have Ashley and John from Sailing Baby Blue, a young couple who sailed up and down the thorny path and... They did it on a boat from 1969, 33-foot boat. Besides having such an inspiring story, they're uh, one of the nicest couples I've had the opportunity to interview on this podcast, and they have a great YouTube channel, Sailing Baby Blue, that you'll definitely want to check out. All right, so last month, I sailed the slow boat 3,500 nautical miles with two crew members uh, from mainland Ecuador, to Hiva Oa in the Marquesas. And I'm not going to talk about uh, all that trip today, but uh, I'll talk about some house cleaning issues. I'll talk about certainly our incident with the whale when we were over a thousand miles from the nearest land and in the middle of the trip. So I wanted to start out, you know, I don't know if 31st episode is an anniversary of any type, but I wanted to talk about what I set out to do with this podcast, and, and uh, what we've done so far. So I said at the first episode that I really wanted to pattern this podcast after a, a podcast that kind of disappeared podcast away, where the creator of the podcast, the uh, the host, more or less only talked about his sailing on the trade wind circumnavigation route, he was—he had never had the intention of circumnavigating or or sailing around the world, but he was definitely dead on that trade wind route, and he went from from Trinidad in the podcast all the way to Australia, and I wanted to do something similar to that, except I'm not aware of any podcast so far that has kind of been a audio log of uh, somebody trying to sail around the world. You know, obviously, the way I'm doing it, I'm trying to do it sailing around the world part time. I, I guess you can make the argument there's some people that do say they, they're sailing around the world, but maybe are not necessarily on the, the, the trade wind circumnavigation route. But I wanted to take it farther than uh, what podcast away did so they only came out with maybe four or five episodes every year martin lane smith was the creator and i you know i wanted to have a continuous running podcast and and right now we're doing a monthly podcast so this will be the february 2017 podcast and plan to have them in march april may june etc i told you in episode 29 that we'd probably skip Episode, we'd skip December 2016, and that was only because I was in the middle of the Pacific Ocean with no way to upload a podcast. So you can't upload a podcast uh, with a satellite connection. And I really like the format that I think was pioneered uh, by Furled Sales, a podcast you can't get anymore, uh, which was an interview for podcast where creators, Noel Davis was the primary host with his wife that they interviewed interesting sailors, sailors that they were really interested in talking to. And that's uh, that's what I've tried to do uh, in, a, in almost every episode uh, we've had guests. And our guests have been and will be the most interesting sailors in the world. I have many interviews already recorded. We're going to have uh, the sailing yacht Zero uh, as creator Christian on episode 32. But we have many more great sailors interviewed. Here is a message from our On the AIS guest, Sailorama.
1: This is Sailorama. My name is Justine, and Robinson is my daring husband and captain. We are sailing the seas and living simply. We sailed our tiny boat down the Pacific West Coast and are now taking on a bigger project. We have been restoring a 33 foot sailboat which was donated to us in San Francisco. We will soon be continuing on south. Robbie grew up on a boat and I learned how to sail only several years ago. We're learning more every day. Join us on this continuing ocean journey. Search Sailorama on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram.
0: So I'm so grateful to all our listeners, and I encourage you, if you like this podcast, to, of course, write a rating or review on iTunes uh, so that you can let other people know about uh, the podcast that you love. And that's probably the number one way, say, sharing the podcast links with your friends or telling your, po- your friends. But writing a rating or a review tells Lots and lots of people, what you like to listen to. We've had over 40,000 downloads in our first 30 episodes, and we've seen pretty steady growth in the number of downloads per episode since we started this podcast. And this podcast would not be possible. There's tremendous expenses in producing a podcast. I've had to upgrade storage, I just upgraded my computer, I have to pay for hosting. To bring you this podcast. Unlike YouTube, it is not free to upload podcasts. Oh, and those download numbers do not include the downloads or views that we've had on uh, YouTube, because I also uh, put select episodes on YouTube to get people that are not familiar with podcasts to listen to this podcast. All this couldn't have been possible without the support of listeners like you who be pledged as little as a dollar. On Patreon.com, we hit our twenty-dollar goal, and we gave away the the goal prize, which is a prize for anybody in the world to download my book, Slow Boat to the Bahamas. The first ever free day we ever did for Slowboat to the Bahamas, and probably the last. If you were, you know, following my Facebook page closely or Twitter feed or you had signed up for my free newsletter at slowboatsailing.com, you would have got a notification about that free day, which was Christmas Day, and 150 people took advantage of that free day uh, to download a free copy. So the the $20 in pledges uh, translated into free books worth $1,500. So thank you to all our patrons who made whose generosity made that possible. But being a patron is not just a gift, you get more value than you are asked to put up. Got a $1 pledge, will get you a free audiobook version of my bestseller, How to Sail Around the World Part-Time. And it will also give you the over 20 bonus episodes starting with episode 10 with SV Delos in your personal RSS feed. And uh, one of our more recent patrons, Philippe, took it is taking advantage of that feed and gave me some great tips on how to make it easier uh, for patrons to distinguish that feed from the regular free podcast feed. And so it, in your personal RSS feed, you get all the bonus episodes plus All the audiobooks that you're eligible for if you're a patron patrons going forward have to look forward to the opportunity for two weeks on the slow boat in an exotic location and I think personally I think from what I've heard the Marquesas are the most beautiful islands in the world currently the slow boat is in the Marquesas And I have no plans to take on crew except for two weeks when uh, my family's going to be on board because Jana and Sophie can only spare two weeks this summer. I would love it if we could have a patron in this most exotic cruising ground in the world. So a two-week charter for a similarly sized boat would probably cost $4,000, but there's, there's really no charter opportunities in the Marquesas that I know of. I would like to have a patron and his or her significant other guest to have the best cabin in the slow boat and I'd be aboard uh, as kind of I'm a Coast Guard licensed captain and uh, I'd love to have a patron join me as crew as, as a gift to one of our patrons so we'll uh, when we hit our $80 goal $80 is kind of the minimum I think to get this podcast and the vlog series to break even given the amount of equipment we have to buy, given amount of the hosting we have to pay. I know one podcaster that estimates his expenses on his Patreon site at over $2,000 because he tries to outsource most of the work for putting together the podcast. I don't get any salary, I don't get any pay. My time committed to the podcast is free, even if we hit the goal. I know another podcaster who sells very expensive trips on his yacht, who is asking for $500 to cover his costs of episodes. So instead of trying to sell berths, I want to give berth on my boat away and not rough passage berths, which I want to give a patron and his or her guest a berth in a wonderful cruising destination that you otherwise couldn't go to in the South Pacific. Offshore passages are not what most people would think of a good use of their two weeks of vacation time a year. But cruising the most beautiful and exotic islands of the South Pacific are something a lot of people would do a two-week vacation for. So when we hit that goal, I'll select one of my patrons based on you know their level of support and how long they have supported. So it'll be a random drawing based on You know, how long they've been supporting the podcast and whether they're a crew, first mate, captain, or admiral uh, supporter of the podcast. So captain and admiral supporters only have to pledge 5 or $10 per episode or per month. And uh, with those rewards, they get all my audiobooks, all the bonus episodes like the first mate and crew's. Uh, sponsors the podcast. They also get thank yous and acknowledgements of one of my books, but as a special thank you to them, I give them associate producer credits, associate producer for the captain level, and senior associate producer credits in my upcoming vlogs. So when this podcast comes out, uh, we should also be out with Episode 9, our first episode in Panama of the Round the World Vlog series. Our Captain Level sponsor, Anders, is an associate producer of that. So I'm really happy with how the the Round the World Vlog series is going. We gave away the first ever printed copy of Slowboat to Cuba when we hit that $500 goal. To one of my free subscribers on YouTube who gave her US mailing address. And we've been pretty steadily giving away free books to our YouTube subscribers. So check out the Vlog series. What I try to do with the Vlog series is create highly edited videos that use, you know, wonderful pictures, hundreds of clips in every Round the World Vlog series episode. And recently I did a director's cut of the first five episodes, which followed along the same time period as my book Slow Boat to Cuba and made that into one big giant episode. And so if you haven't caught up with the series yet, uh, subscribe so you can get the new videos when they come out monthly. I'm going to shoot for the first Thursday every month. So for example, we released... Or we will release episode 9 on the Thursday, February 2nd. That is Groundhog Day at 5 p.m. New York City time. I intend to do that 5 p.m. New York City time the first Thursday of every month. The only reason I would expect to have a disruption is based on the internet capabilities uh, in the Marquesas this summer. But certainly until this summer, uh, we'll do that. I have 12 episodes planned for the first season, which takes us all the way down to Ecuador. I've already filmed at least two episodes that I have the the filming for have not edited from the you know the departure from Ecuador and the uh, cross Pacific trip, including our being hit by a whale mid Pacific. One of the benefits, if you're one of the patrons and we hit our goal and we have a, a patron coming aboard this summer, would be that those patrons would be some of the stars of season two, which I plan to release the first episode, first full episode of season two of the Round the World Vlog series on the Slowboat Sailing YouTube channel in June. So Subscribe so you can get the episodes that include Panama, the Panama Canal, and Crossing the Equator. I also, on the channel already, I have that director's cut of Slow Boat to Cuba, the movie, so kind of the long version, of a condensed version of all the five episodes, first five episodes, and you can see the, the episodes six, seven, and eight in a condensed version in the Sailing in Providencia episode on the YouTube channel, or you can... Take the playlist uh, for season one and uh, just watch that all the way through. Won't take you too long. All right, so I want to talk about why I sailed in December. And I was kind of sketchy on that in previous episodes. So in December, I did not plan to sail. I would never uh, do kind of a a long cruise that encompassed Christmas. So I just... Wouldn't want to miss that, and especially with a six-year-old daughter, don't want to miss Christmas. So that would be something I would never do really voluntarily. I, I won't say that I didn't have a choice in the matter, but I, there were consequences if I did not follow that choice. And basically the consequences were that to keep your boat in Ecuador, you need permission from customs. And when I arrived, I got a three-month, 90-day permission And I applied for a 270-day extension, which my agent said would have been no problem to get. I applied for that extension. I signed papers to apply for that extension before I left in, I think, late July or early August. And my agent did put those papers to the Ecuadorian authorities, although there's some dispute by somebody else who works at the boatyard, whether or not she asked for nine months or forgot about it. I don't know. We definitely signed papers to that effect, and she she had it in writing. But the customs did not grant it. They only granted 180 days. And 180 days would have meant that my right to keep the boat in Ecuador, where I was paying $900 per month, which is about three times more than a boat my size would pay in Panama or in the Marquesas, or probably the rest of French Polynesia, I haven't checked the prices, but I suspect they're similar, to keep your boat hauled out in a in a dry storage facility. And that was a huge amount of money, but I was willing to pay it because it was the, you know, it it worked based on my objectives and schedule. But they weren't gonna let me do that for the full 10 months I needed. They were only they only gave me nine months, which meant that I would have to sail in, in the middle of April. And I teach classes until the end of April, and we have exams and stuff in early May. And I obviously couldn't miss that. That's my job. You know, I need that job to pay that exorbitant haul-out fee and the exorbitant fees to the Ecuadorian government and the Ecuadorian agents. And I I, I may have mentioned that I'm found the Ecuadorian authorities just unpredictable. So I sailed into a port of refuge in Ecuador and I was not allowed to take on fuel by the Ecuadorian port captain. I was told to leave, even though I had problems with my furling line. As soon as I fixed my furling line, I was told to leave and could not go ashore, could not get fuel. If you read Noonsight about my agent, my, the port I was in, La Libertad, that there have been problems with customs and my agent where someone had missed a deadline and they had something like a $10,000 fine threatened. So the consequences for them denying my permit and me not leaving the country in April were very high. I just found them unpredictable, even though my agent said that she could get a three-month extension after that or a six-month extension after that. I didn't believe her. So that was why we sailed in December. But that, you know, that meant flew out to Ecuador in Thanksgiving to prep the boat with food, water, fuel, just really the basics, did a little bit of basic checking to make sure the rig was properly tuned, and uh, then we were ready to set off given that we'd had no adverse weather. You know, after this, I got this permit denial, I think it was kind of in October or it was not the length that I wanted. I started actively interviewing candidates on crew matching services. I ended up after dozens of interviews and extensive applications, I ended up settling on the two people that I thought were the, the most Adventurous with the nicest personalities who are most likely to be successful in the voyage. I'm very picky about the offshore crew that I'll take on. Those were Ben and Sahia, and you'll see them in uh, season two videos. So I'm going to talk briefly about the weather situation, why you can sail in December, where we were, and also I'll talk about the uh, collision with the whale. So if you look at the hurricane maps or the cyclone maps around the world that maybe somebody like Jimmy Cornell will put out in his books, or if you look at the cyclone paths for the South Pacific, they really don't go to the Marquesas, maybe one out of 50 cyclones, one out of 200 cyclones just touch the Marquesas, but they don't really go beyond it. So that big stretch of the eastern Caribbean where we were uh, from Ecuador almost all the way to the Marquesas was historically untouched by cyclones. So you can basically sail that part of the South Pacific all year round without worrying about cyclones. If we did have cyclone risk, uh, we could have sailed north to the equator and the cyclones cannot go to, they'll die out before the equator. And we were very close to the equator the whole trip. So we were between one south, we actually were pushed north a little on the beginning of the trip based on the winds, and then 10 south, which is where Hiba Oa is, a, a little north of 10 south. And this trip, 3,500 nautical miles, is about a sixth of the, the world's circumference on the equator. So it's, not a trip that you can really weather window you i think the winds are more or less force four is the typical wind in the pilot charts so the only thing i was looking for with the weather window was not to have like 25 knot headwinds and we didn't have that Uh, the winds were maybe 15 to 20 they were made us close hauled and made us go north of our intended course to begin with but they They started backing relatively quickly. All right, so I don't want to talk about the passage. We did set off, but I do want to talk about the incident with the whale. And that happened midway through the trip. It was a 27-day trip. I believe that happened on day 14. I'll look back at my logbooks. But we were sailing along. We had a good watch system. We had a three-person watch. Me and Ben were getting ready to switch watch. Ben was at the wheel. He was actually looking forward at the time when we struck the whale. When we struck the whale, I thought it was maybe a big wave. It was very noticeable to both Ben and Sahia. I think Ben said, what was that? You know, and he never made that exclamation on that trip before that. But on the the passage me, Sophie, Jana, and Daly had to Ecuador, we were staggered many times where the boat was slowed to less than two knots because of waves in our path. This trip was much nicer in terms of the wave pattern, and so we were never really staggered like that until we hit the whale. We knew it was a whale because once we hit it, me and Ben, were looking over to the port side where it felt like it was coming from the, the the mid port. And we looked over and we saw a whale fin. We both saw a whale fin. I saw parts of gray and also parts of charcoal or black. I believe I saw a blowhole and from only after I had access to the internet and the ability to look at lots and lots of whales and look at kind of their relative size I believe it was a 20 to 25 foot whale I did not see the whole body but based on the size of its flipper which was maybe three to four feet and what I saw of its head I believe it was probably about 20 to 25 feet and it looked the most based on its color markings as a a a Minsky whale so when I hit it you know I thought of you know what are the small whales that I had thought of but I had no access to pictures and so after I had access to pictures when I got on uh, the land of internet based on what I've seen the Minsky whale was the most likely based on their their grounds and their size uh, and a Minsky whale looks somewhat like a, a humpback but it's much smaller and you know I thought when we hit it the first thing I did was check the bilges I did not see anything for the bilges after I saw the whale uh, when we saw me and Ben saw the whale. I probably had a better look at it than Ben did based on his accounts in the sense that he said he was worried about steering and other things because he was at the helm. The The whale was probably bleeding. Uh, we saw brown, red color. in the, uh, So I thought it was possible it could have been some thing going out its blowhole and blowing some kind of refuse. But It was probably also bleeding. It was probably injured by the incident. There was absolutely no way we could have seen it. It was underneath the water when we hauled out the boat. So this is two weeks later. We hauled out the boat. We got to Hiva Oa. We were a 1,000 miles from the nearest land. The Galapagos was the nearest land, and that was upwind. So really, our next port of refuge was Hiva Oa in the Marquesas. We were fortunate that there was a, a ship around there. It was some type of fishing vessel. I have the name written in my logbook and maybe I'll get it out. It did not respond to hails. We did notify a, of a security, security call saying that we were struck by the whale. They did not respond to our securite call. I also made it clear that we were not injured and we were continuing on our course. I did give them the coordinates of where we struck the whale. So we were a thousand miles from the Galapagos. But we were 1,800 nautical miles from our last port La Libertad and 1,700 miles from our next port, Hiva Oa. So we were in the middle of the Pacific. Rescue would have been very far away had that whale punched a hole in our boat. Luckily it didn't. The fact that there was not water in the bilge, the fact that there was not a huge leak in the boat pouring through the side, which has happened to many sailors, right? So obviously Moby Dick is based on the true story of the whale ship Essex, which was sunk by a whale. Many more modern sailors have had their boats sunk or badly damaged by hitting a whale. And of course you can see the the modern account of the whale ship Essex in the movie At the Mercy of the Sea. So at the time, even though it felt like it hit higher than the keel. I thought it must have hit the keel because I did not think that my boat could survive striking a whale in the side of its hull. I just didn't think it was thick enough. But it was thick enough. And when we did haul out, there was a smudge right where I thought we had hit. It was just a brown smudge. There was a little bit of paint scratched off in a line where the whale you know, scraped across the hull as it went towards the stern as we moved forward because we were going forward, you know, with our momentum. That was then we saw the whale as it passed our stern and we were able to see that that brown red splotch as we kept on sailing on. The whale did not turn around and I did not turn around to get a better look at the whale. So the last thing I wanted to do was have any more contact with that whale again, because I believed it could sink us if it wanted to. At the time, I thought it was an act of aggression by the whale. The whale has eyes that can see underneath the water. Our boat does not have any eyes that can see underneath the water. Our depth sounders go straight down. We have two depth sounders, no fish finder. So we have no uh, way of seeing what's ahead of us. And the only thing that we could measure would be a depth and we weren't measuring any depths at that time that I know of. In retrospect, I think it's possible that the whale was asleep just below the water and maybe not paying attention, but it's also possible that whales are used to other fish getting out of their way and are surprised when vessels which don't have eyes don't get out of their way. I don't know what the answer is. I believe that the whale was awake, certainly after we hit each other. All right, so that's all I want to say about the trip in this episode. We'll talk more about it in the following episode, but I want to bring you the interview with the crew of Sailing Baby Blue. Just give me your names.
2: Okay, so I'm Ashley. And I'm John. And we're Sailing Baby Blue.
0: Is that the name of your boat?
2: Baby Blue is the boat's name, and then our YouTube channel is Sailing Baby
0: Blue. Okay, when did you get the boat?
1: In uh, July of 2014,
0: where did you buy it?
2: We were in Rockport, Maine.
0: Are you guys from Maine, or are you? Uh,
2: no, uh, upstate New York originally for me. And I'm from Colorado, which is where John and I met. So we um sold our house and quit our jobs in Colorado, and then drove to upstate New York to kind of hang out while we were searching for boats in the New England
0: area. Okay, I noticed Ashley. Your last name is Cluche and that's a very cajun name. Do you have any uh, relatives down in Louisiana? Uh it's uh
2: French Canadian, right? Yeah, French Canadian as far as what my family tells me.
0: You guys bought it in Maine, so you did kind of a national search, I guess.
1: Well, um, we mostly looked on the East Coast. We were we we're planning on starting the trip on the on the East Coast because we wanted to head down have you know, the option of heading down the ICW and then do the Caribbean. So we we limited our search to the East Coast, and then kind of started in New England and found the boat pretty quickly up there. What uh, type
0: of boat is it, actually?
1: It's a 1969 Allied Looters. Mm-hmm. It's a 33-foot sloop. And, yeah, it was actually in really good shape, uh, especially considering it's a from 1969. So for a really old boat, it was in really good shape.
0: Well, that's awesome. We used to have a boat that was built in 1969, too. Our first boat uh, was a 30-foot holer. Now is the allied letters is that a full keel fin keel uh the it's a looters um uh, it's a full keel it's cut away in the the front pretty good but yeah full keel attached rudder so nice nice solid boat how long was it from the time that you bought it to the time that you kind of left Maine
1: um so we stuck around Maine and New England for the summer pretty much so for about 3 months we were up there before we actually started heading Making our way towards Florida. Okay. We left September 30th.
0: Well, I hear Maine's pretty nice in the summer.
1: Uh, yeah, it was a great place to start. Uh, it was gorgeous up there. Yeah, so it was a good place to start. And with high tides and stuff, it's not the most forgiving place, probably. And lots of granite up there. Yeah, it was, uh, we had fun cruising around there. It's a lot of pretty protected water up there. And then uh, started our trips out. Did you,
0: did you spend most of your time at the dock there when you were in Maine? Or did you get to, to tour around?
2: We spent most of the time just trying to buy things for the boat. You know, it was in really good shape, but we still felt like we needed to make some upgrades and just changes so that it would be good for our offshore cruising. So a lot of the time we were just driving around, going to the marine store. And then um, a couple weeks we were able to actually get out there and cruise around and practice sailing, and we went up to Bar Harbor. So we did see some things, but we'd love to go back and see more.
1: Okay, so
0: what kind of things did you put on? baby blue.
2: We got a new anchor. I think it came with two, but we got another one. Yeah, we we had a Bruce,
1: and then we ended up getting a, a Rockna, slightly larger, rock uh, Rockna anchor. Um, what else did we do? We uh, put in new batteries. We actually took out the pressure water and the hot water and just switched over to uh, manual pumps, just to keep it simple and not go through our water supply too fast. Added an additional flexible water tank. We put on the wind vane, self-steering. Oh, that's other than buying a bunch of safety gear. I think that's, we didn't make too many changes to the boat itself.
0: So it sounds like you didn't put on a lot of electronics.
1: No, um, it came with the, uh, chart plotter and we just, uh, used that.
0: And, uh, really the boat was, uh, pretty, pretty simple. And we, we kept it that way. What size of battery bank did you have? Uh, we had, yeah, I forget
1: what the original batteries were. And I know we got slightly larger. I think they're either 115 or 120 amp hour, um, just lead-acid batteries, so we put we have two of those in the boat.
0: So about 240 amp hours,
1: 230? Yeah, yep. so really it's still not a, a huge battery bank, but the boat's you know, pretty simple so it doesn't use a, a lot of power.
0: Okay, I think that's reasonable for the size of the boat, but it's probably on the lower end, definitely uh, most of the people you'll see out there. So give me an overview of your trip. So you went from Maine, and then where was your furthest south?
1: Uh, the south was Grenada. Okay, so you and, went uh, the
0: entire thorny path.
1: Yeah, did the, did the entire thorny path. Um, mostly ahead. did the ICW on the way south. We made a few jumps outside where we sail from Charleston to North Florida. Then Florida, we mostly did hops um, outside along the coast. And then uh, crossed over to the Bahamas from Lake Worth.
0: So you did that all? You did the entire Thorny Path in one year? Is that right? Uh, yeah. So we would have started
1: heading south in late September, and then uh, I guess we were in Grenada by yeah beginning of July. So, wow. But, uh, <laughs> it took us a while, but uh, yeah, in one.
0: That's one, that's amazing. So, did I? I bet a lot of the cruisers that you saw said you were moving pretty fast.
1: Uh, yeah. And at times we kind of questioned whether we we're going too fast. Um,
2: I think most of the people that we met in Grenada had, were on about the same timeline as we were. They had left that same season, but maybe not as far north as Maine.
1: <laughs> yeah, but we met a lot of other boats. You know, they they would do it in, in hops, like travel down to Florida and then get off the boat for a while and haul it out for hurricane season and then move further. And so some people do it that way, and then we did meet a, a handful of people who just kept going like we did.
0: Okay. Did you have a lot of problems getting down the ICW?
1: Um, It was
2: really cold when we left, but... Otherwise, well, yeah, we did break down in Bella Haven. We had an engine mount kind of wobbling loose, um, and then we had our, what, heat exchanger wasn't working, so I smelled carbon monoxide, and I kept telling John. Um, he smelled exhaust, <laughs> Yeah.
0: Yeah. <it's, laughs> <I don't... laughs> uh, just just for safety's sake, I'm going to interject and say you cannot smell carbon monoxide, and if uh, you do own a boat, you definitely should have a carbon monoxide detector uh, I've my carbon monoxide detector has saved me and Daly's life so many times. So.
1: <laughs> yeah, we had a, an exhaust leak. Um, Ashley said that she smelled exhaust inside the boat. I was like, Ah, eh, diesel smell like that. And then our carbon monoxide alarm started going off, so we realized that we definitely had a, a leak.
0: Okay, so I'm glad you took care of that, and you had to Ashley smelled the exhaust. So you, I think one of the things my experience with my first boat. Was We had a ton of engine problems, and we, we were just didn't know anything about engines. We were forced to learn them the hard way. Got the heat exchanger fixed. What was the exhaust problem?
1: Uh, well, we had had uh, some uh, rough weather, and I think we broke a, an engine mount at some point, and the, the mixing elbow had actually started to wiggle loose from the, um, from the heat exchanger and kind of uh, messed up the threads where it was attached on there. I tried tightening it up, but the threads were all uh, stripped out. So, we had to take the, the heat exchanger off and then have it um, drilled out and re threaded and uh, get all new gaskets and put it all back together. But I think we were only held up in Bellhaven for about like three or four days to, to get fixed. So, we ran into some nice people there that helped us. There's a little uh, gas station that let us send the, the new gaskets to them right across from the Freetown dock. And then we found a machine shop that fixed it for, and it cost us like $75 to have the heat exchanger drilled out and re-threaded and engine mount rewelded.
0: welded it was actually really really inexpensive <laughs> okay did you guys do you think the the elbow was okay the
1: fact uh, that it was popping out maybe it was
0: blocked did you ever no, change was, the elbow it or just, uh, clean it it actually had broken one of the one of the bolts was
1: broken off so no nah, i don't think it was an issue with that uh, it wasn't blocked or anything it was just uh had had well wiggled itself loose and then uh was loose enough so it stripped out the threads but Okay. It, it ran fine once we got it back together. No no issues.
0: That was in Bellhaven. Where's Bellhaven?
1: It's in uh, North Carolina, right along the ICW, I guess. Uh, what is it? Just south of the Alligator River and Alligator Canal.
0: Was this part of a... Uh, did you guys have like a two-year plan or something? Is that uh, why you went so quick down the Eastern Caribbean? or?
2: Um, we didn't really have a set plan of what we wanted to do uh, when we left... Maine we knew we wanted to go sailing and wanted to kind of get as far as we could but we did talk about only going to the Bahamas in our first season uh, especially when we started having trouble finding a good weather window to get to the Dominican Republic but basically once we left the Bahamas we knew we didn't want to just leave the boat for hurricane season we wanted to get it you know down south so once we actually were able to get a good weather window and made that jump we were committed to getting down there that season and then we needed to get back in the next season otherwise we'd run out of money so it's mostly just a, we only have this much money so we probably can't be gone for too long
0: okay so when you started out did you think it was an open-ended trip or did you think it was maybe a two-year trip
1: i guess we wanted to be able to do at least two years i guess we kind of set out with the expectation that we'd at least get to the bahamas if we didn't make it to the bahamas i guess we would have felt like we our trip was a failure kind of and then we were possibly looking as ambitious as heading into the you know, through the panama canal and into the south pacific but we decided that was uh, too much for at least our, our first time out.
0: Okay, well, it sounds like the, you know, definitely the trip back must have been a lot quicker than the trip up.
1: Yeah, it was a whole lot easier sailing in that direction with the wind behind us instead of uh, bashing into it the whole time. Yeah, it was a whole lot easier. And also, having been to a lot of the islands, we knew the places that we liked and the check in process everywhere. And um, we did feel a little bit rushed on the way down. So it was kind of nice to actually head back and then. Be able to spend some more time in the places that we really liked
0: okay did you guys stop in <laughs> Karaku is that how you pronounced it
2: yeah uh, we did carriacou i yes, i remember my memory of carriacou is john being climbing up the mast and trying to fix our mast headlight
0: okay <laughs> how did that go so, kind of
2: temporary
0: so. yeah <laughs> were you in a marina or were you in an anchorage
2: we were just anchored
0: how did that go <laughs>
1: Our, yeah, I've done quite a few trips up the mast, so it, it was nice. It's good to have a way to get up the mast. I'd recommend that for anyone planning on going cruising. Yeah, this time our, our halyard broke and blew all the way up the mast. I had to go up the retreat of that and had to change out the, the mast headlight. Yeah, so did quite a few trips up there. It's also nice to Go up and inspect everything once in a while, too. Well, I
0: really, uh, in, I really like our mast climber, which is kind of a solo climber. Do you guys have a bosun's chair? Is that it?
1: We made our own it's a uh, like nylon webbing ladder that actually has uh, slides on it so it goes right up the track for the for the mansell.
0: I guess you guys are from Colorado or either one of you climbers? Um
1: not really. I did I used to do a little bit of climbing, but uh, actually I still had my my harness from rock climbing, but I never got that into it.
0: Did you bring your harness with you to,
1: to Yeah, uh, so yeah, we the used the ladder and then I uh, had a backup halyard that clip into the the rock climbing harness, so in case the, uh, the ladder broke or anything.
2: Because I sewed it myself, so I didn't want to be in trouble if. Get uh, yeah. a
0: ladder. I've never heard of that. Somebody using a ladder.
1: Yeah, what's the company? Um, I think it's just called mass 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 made or something. But, oh, okay. Yeah, I know there's, there's a company that makes the ni- the webbing ladders, and uh, we kind of made our own,
2: but. It would be worth just buying
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you didn't use an ascender. You used a, a ladder to get up the mast. Yep. So it's kind of like rat lines almost.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's just a, a soft soft ladder, so
0: it's a uh, yeah, just little loops that you that you step in. Did you uh, get banged up up there or not really?
1: Uh no, i never I never went up when it was too rough. So I, we never never had to go up the mast when we were actually like out in the ocean sailing or anything. So it was always in a in a protected anchorage. On so a yeah, not never, very windy
0: day. Yeah, I'm just so I'm so scared of going up the mast. I hate it so much. But I do it and if <laughs> Jana's around, I'll get her to do it. But
1: uh, our mast is probably a bit shorter than most people, so it's a pretty small boat. So it's only about forty feet
0: up. Yeah, I think mine is thirty-five feet up. So. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that that was a that was definitely a consideration when buying the boat. is to find a yeah. boat with a small mast. Okay, so uh, you guys got to Grenada. You hauled out in Grenada, is that right? Did you stay in the Uh, water?
1: No, we didn't haul out. We
2: actually stayed on the boat. Yeah, we got a mooring when we were gone.
0: Yeah, we
1: did a quick trip back to the States, but Mm -hmm. uh, we just um, kept the boat on a mooring with somebody watching us, or watching the boat for us.
0: Okay. And uh, you stayed in Grenada most of the off-season? Yeah, we were there from July until, when did we leave? Halloween. Yeah, yeah, right around Halloween. Yeah, so hung out there for several months, other than uh, I was back for, for about three weeks, and... Ashley was back for eight, eight weeks. So you, you guys went back to the States for three weeks and eight weeks, respectively.
1: Yeah, I got
2: to go back to work. So, well, mostly it covered our plane tickets home because we wanted to go see everyone. So right. that was a way to justify it.
0: Did you uh, spend the holidays back in the States or did you celebrate the holidays uh, on the boat? Cause uh, on
1: the boat. so uh, the prime uh, moving we season. The, yeah, Thanksgiving uh, back in Martinique.
2: Yeah, we are in St. Anne. Some people that we would met in Grenada, they had a we had Thanksgiving
0: on the
1: boat. Some they even found a turkey, so it was pretty fun. <laughs> then uh, yeah, Christmas I think it was in Guadeloupe, right?
0: Sounds good to me.
1: It wasn't was so bad. I think we went <laughs> to hang on on Christmas Day. So
0: so you guys headed up, and what were some of the places you missed again on your way back up?
2: Saint Lucia was one that a new one that we got to stop at. Yeah, we anchored or picked up a mooring by the, the Pitons and Saint Lucia. Went to the hot springs and did a little bit of hiking, but mostly just on the road trying to get places. <laughs>
1: yeah, it was kind of, I don't know, we spent probably about a week in St. Lucia, I think, or maybe a little longer. A
2: little less.
1: A little less than a week. All right. Okay, okay. <laughs> And then uh, what else did we get to see on the way back that we missed? Um, we got to see a lot more of Guadalupe, where we spent, yeah, we rented a car and spent a while there on the way back, so it's more touring. We climbed up that uh, the volcano there, I forget what it's called.
0: All right, and so what's your plans for Baby Blue right
1: now, now that you're back in the States?
0: So you, I think I watched a few of your YouTube series, the more recent ones, as you were going up in the Bahamas, and then you kind of crossed over. I was impressed by your use of life jackets. I'm pro that. So you guys are back in New York, you told me. Uh, Is the boat in New York?
1: No, the boat's actually in Virginia on the the Chesapeake uh, out right now. So we had been planning on taking a bit of a break and hauling the boat out for a while. We needed bottom paint and some other stuff, but then uh, actually in our next video coming up, we had a, a little bit more excitement to to end out our, our trip uh, up to Virginia. Okay. We got we got struck by
0: lightning. Uh oh. Uh oh. Yeah, I'm sure by <laughs> the time this comes out. Yeah, unfortunately we were uh, just on the way up the ICW
1: and we were away from any protected anchorage. We ended up having to just got, yeah, yeah, in Kind of an unexpected thunderstorm. We're actually, trying to run from one, we'd heard a severe thunderstorm warning for a storm south of us. So we we're trying to make as much progress north as we could. And then they had another severe thunderstorm warning for a storm just north of us. And I'm not sure which one hit us, but one of the, one of the storms hit us, and um, we had to drop the anchor because the, the boat was getting blown out of the channel um, into shallow water. So we were just anchored out in a sound like. completely unprotected yeah pretty severe lightning storm with strikes all around us and i guess we weren't really surprised when the boat got hit considering how much lightning was hitting the the water around us and stuff
0: wow and what happened did it blow out some electronics did you have any holes in the boat
2: yeah we actually we heard it was super you know it seemed really close but we weren't actually sure that it did hit us until um we noticed that our radio was off so yeah it took out all of the electronics save like our chart plotter which was handy and then like a few lights in the cabin but everything else was gone and then when we did haul out you know there was a vhf antenna at the top of the mast. john went up the next day to see that that was where the lighting struck of course and so that was all blown out but there was no- nothing in the hole everything was fine so we were lucky in that way
1: yeah, the boat seems like it was actually properly grounded anyway. So I know we had seen the grounding wires going to th- some of the different through hole fittings and stuff. So uh, luckily it didn't blow a hole in the bottom of the boat because I'd heard that that can happen. So structurally the boat was fine, but um, most of the electronics were fried.
0: So what's your plan now for the boat after you get it fixed up? <laughs> well, yeah, we uh, got it
1: up to, to Deltaville um, after getting hit and hauled out. So yeah, after that experience, we were definitely ready for a bit of a break, getting off the boat for a while. Um, So now we're kind of, uh, we're hoping to, uh, we're not selling the boat yet. We need to fix it up. So we're hoping to maybe do some videos of uh, doing a a refit. And we're still kind of up in the air about, I guess, exactly what's next. But uh, for the meantime, do you want to say what we're doing? (laughs) Uh,
2: We are currently building a tiny house. It's something that we had thought about, actually, John wanted to do before we even left. And I said no way i don't want to live in a tiny house but it's actually it'll be bigger than our boat and kind of an upgrade and i finally was like okay that sounds good and then we came home and we're watching tv and realized that tiny houses are all the rage right now so <laughs> we're uh, being trendy and building one of our own
0: okay awesome is this house portable Yep, yeah, yeah if it's on a trailer it's on, yeah it'll be portable so it's sort of like cruising but
1: it'll be uh land-based we actually have some some property that we might park it on and we might do some traveling in that for a little bit but i guess we weren't really ready to just um, go straight back to normal nine to five jobs and get a mortgage and a house again after you know we had kind of downsized and done away with all that stuff before we left so it it seemed kind of depressing to just you know do the trip and then just automatically come back and buy all that stuff again so we kind of like the idea of having a a house that's semi-mobile and still having the chance to do some traveling again and it won't cost us. We won't have a mortgage and stuff, so if we want to take off on the boat again, we'll be able to do that more easily.
0: What What did you guys work in before you went on the big trip?
1: So I worked for you know, FedEx for about eight years before the trip, just as a courier. So I was out there driving around a FedEx trip. <laughs> I was
2: a social worker, kind of in the legal field, I guess, doing various things.
0: And are you thinking of going back to your old jobs or... Where in the country do you want to live?
1: Well, we, we own some land near Asheville, North Carolina, so we might park there for a while.
2: I would go back to what something similar to what I was doing, but maybe we'd only have to do I don't have to do that part time at this point.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm kind of hoping to find something new or find something that would still like give us the opportunity to travel once in a while, not, not anything too uh, permanent, I guess. But we'll see what happens.
0: But you don't think you really wanna do any more cruising for a while in the sailboat.
1: Well I think we're gonna at least take this winter off, so I think we wanted to get back and sort of be back on land for a while and see how that feels and see if we really miss it. Um so that's why we're not selling the boat or anything yet. So yeah, we haven't totally decided whether this is just a short um break from cruising while we save up some more money or if we're gonna be done with it for a while. We're not sure we if we'd
2: want a new boat, if we went on a different, you know, do we need a bigger boat if we're going to do a bigger cruise or do we want to keep our little boat and do a, another little cruise? We're
1: not sure. Yeah. I think for, if we were going to stick with the Caribbean or do the Bahamas and that area again, um, you know, we'd be perfectly happy doing it in our boat. If we decided that we wanted to do something more ambitious and try to get to the South Pacific or someplace else, we might have to, might want to upgrade to a slightly bigger boat for another trip.
0: Okay. All right. Well, that sounds good. Uh, tell me about uh, your sailing experiences before you bought Baby Blue.
2: I had absolutely no sailing experience, really, before I met John. And then um, we tried to sail some dinghies and some little boats together on our vacations over the five years from when we got married to when we left. But I it didn't necessarily go well any of those times and uh, until we just bought
1: our boat and Started learning to sail it. Yeah, and I had sailed dinghies as a kid, mostly on lakes, and then uh, sailed on the ocean, just day sailing with some friends and stuff a handful of times, but mostly sailed on small boats. Um, I had a little 21 foot McGregor Venture. I had that for quite a few years, but mostly just sailed it on on lakes. So I didn't have a lot of experience and no, no ocean sailing experience. So yeah, we were both pretty pretty green when we started, and I convinced Ashley that the, the cruising thing was a, a good idea before she really knew what she was getting herself into. Yeah,
0: it seemed like a kind of a big leap in the sense that you were kind of landlocked in Colorado there, and then drove all the way across the country, but...
1: Yeah, because we really didn't have the money to go out and buy a boat or anything, or get much experience until we sold our house, and... Yeah, being in Colorado, where <laughs> there's not a whole lot of sailing opportunities there. So we kind of had to just commit and uh, sell the house and then go for it.
0: How could people find you if they wanted to find out more about you guys? Um,
1: our YouTube
2: channel, Sailing Baby Blue, is a good place to start. Probably by the time this is out, we'll have a new sailingbabyblue.com. Um, our blog that we kept kind of from the beginning of when we started thinking about doing this, is feeding the cruising kitty. which is a little long and complicated. <laughs> so so. <laughs> we're moving that all to sailingbabyblue.com.
0: Don't have a kitty, though. It's just the cruising kitty. <laughs> yeah, we,
1: we have a dog, which we didn't bring with us on our trip. Okay. So, uh, no, no kitty. <laughs> all right. Your dog, uh, you left him with family? <laughs> yeah, my, my mom had uh, our dog for... <laughs> For two years while we were gone so
0: well that was was nice to to watch her for
1: us
0: (laughs) but she's with you now
1: yep yep yeah we're back with the dog so
0: so what 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 kind of dog do you guys have
2: she's an australian cattle dog she has she's like nine or ten now but she still has tons of energy and loves to run around so
1: yeah we didn't think she would have been a good fit for on the boat i don't think she would have liked the confined spaces
0: yeah all right my dog daily is a four pound poodle and toy poodle, and he—I think he's having trouble adjusting to the house now. Because uh, he, really well. he used—he doesn't—he doesn't like the living room anymore. He thinks it's too slick for him. <laughs> he, yeah. His his sedentary life on the the boat has—I don't know—boiled him or something. <laughs> was
1: Anyways. it difficult with the dog checking into different countries and stuff, or was it not too bad?
0: It was usually not bad. I think the only problems I've had with daily was go, flying him out of the airport and I've only done that once. So I'll, uh, I'll, I think, I think typically they're pretty, most countries are pretty easy arriving with a dog by boat, uh, but they're kind of difficult flying in and out with the dog.
1: Yeah. we met a lot of uh, boats with pretty large crews of lots of, kids and dogs and cats and <laughs> yeah do you mind
0: if i ask how old you are i'm 32 i'm 36 okay well it's great to see people uh, under 40 under 50 and under 60 getting out yes. there and inspiring people and it sounds like you guys had an awesome adventure and a wonderful cruise yeah <laughs> yeah
1: yeah it was great we're definitely uh you know, even though it was very difficult at times we're, we're really glad that we did it and when we did it yeah, and glad we did it while we we're still younger. <laughs> um, but yeah, hopefully it won't be the the last of our sailing adventures. Hopefully we'll get back out again sometime. Yeah.
0: Okay. Bye bye. 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 Thank you for listening to episode thirty one of the Slowboat Sailing Podcast. Don't forget to check out the new videos and subscribe on to our YouTube channel YouTube dot com slash slowboat sailing if you want to get access to the bonus episode uh, with ashley and john of sailing baby blue they talk in detail about all the islands they visited on the thorny path in that bonus episode and i talk a little bit more about the trip you can get that by pledging as little as a dollar before that you'll get all the bonus episodes you'll get how to sail around the world part-time and you will be entered in the drawing if you're still a patron when we hit our next goal uh, for a berth on the slow boat and hopefully be part of the youtube series thanks to all our new patrons larry brad alan seth and philippe who pledged since our episode 29 in november i look forward to bringing The Sailing Yacht Zero's creator, Christian, on episode 32 of the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Goodbye for now. Have some fun on the water. We'll be back in March.
1: Hi, I'm Jana Wilson. Thank you for listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Subscribe to our free newsletter at slowboatsailing.com.